Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Dan Siegel, who many of you may know. He's a professor of psychiatry at UCLA, as well as the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center and is the director of the Mindsight Institute. His most recent work integrates the theories of intrapersonal neurobiology with theories of mindfulness and proposes that mindfulness practice is a highly developed process of both inter- and intrapersonal attunement. He's not only well-published in the psychiatry literature, but has also published a number of books for the lay public including his most recent called Intraconnected, which we're going to talk about today. He's also more recently a children's book author, having published a book called Now Maps. In addition, today we're going to talk about his most recent work, which is going to be published in the professional literature for which he has been working on for over 20 years. Additionally, we're going to talk about the Enneagram, which some of you may know, and how that intersects with the work that he's been doing. And we're going to also discuss our own Enneagrams. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, look forward to uh, having you listen. Thanks again. Take care. Well, Dan, uh, welcome to this episode of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. It's great to have you. Obviously, you and I have known each other a little bit of time. Uh, so I just wanted to, in some ways, just reconnect and say hello and uh, see how you're doing. But uh, you're such a uh, prolific individual who has uh, an immense amount of information that, uh, as we were talking earlier, we could be here for many, many hours. Um, one of the things I know has been of interest and continues to be of interest is um, the creation of self, uh, the developing brain, uh, attachment theory, and uh, how those are interrelated and how they cause uh, such trauma to people in the sense that, as you well know, uh, who we are today oftentimes is a manifestation of our past. And maybe you could just give uh, a little overview of that reality. Well, thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me, and great to see you again. Um, you know, you're bringing up three really kind of exciting areas that when we weave them together, the idea of, you know, who we are in this moment, the self, uh, how these bodies we live in, including kind of the embodied brain, which is you know, this transformer of energy and information that, you know, has a whole skull component to it, but that's not the, the limit of it. Um, you know, and then attachment, you know, how our experiences early in life shape us. Um, and this, you know, this weaving of those together, you know, I explore in a book called Intraconnected, which asks a very simple question. It asks, you know, why do we in modern times equate the self with the individual. And in looking at these three things you're inviting us to consider as we start, you know, it's natural that since you have a body, you would say, well, isn't the center of experience, if that's the broad way you say what a self is, 
this center of experience, you know, which has these three features of spa, you know, sensation, perspective, and agency is the way researchers study self. Uh, isn't it just in your body? And, and then, you know, as you know, because you work in the area of compassion, and as people have known for thousands of years in the area of contemplation and indigenous teachings, you know, the people here I am, you know, the Tongva and the Chumash in this land, you know, which I honor being here, their teachings were always about, you aren't just your body. And yet in a modern culture, especially the United States, the most individualistic uh, nation in the world, you know, we have this view of self equals just the body. So the first place to start in your question is to say, well, you know, is self a center of experience? Is that center of experience only limited by your skin, your skin encased body? And I want to maybe invite us to consider in this conversation that not only may that be a limited view, but if we take that on as, <coughs> excuse me, the absolute truth, we may actually be killing ourselves, whether it's in conflicts of war or killing ourselves in racism or killing ourselves in how we're destroying the natural world in terms of the climate crisis. And that it may be that this mistaken identity of self as the individual is this kind of very serious but often not discussed issue. So that's um, that would start with the self business. You can look at the brain mechanisms, which I do in the book Interconnected, sort of the development across the lifespan of how does the understanding of the brain, <coughs> excuse me, how does the understanding of the brain as we know it now influence that experience of self? So we could talk about that. And then for sure, you know, I'm an attachment researcher. We know that the way you're treated by your parents shapes how you define what the self is and how you go around interacting with other selves. Uh, and so those three things are profoundly interrelated, yes. Well, you know, it's interesting and interconnected. You talked about uh, the profound experience you had uh, when you fell off the horse. And and maybe you can briefly uh, mention that uh, because that was, in, it seems in some ways, sort of the stepping off point for you in terms of uh, what you've become. Yeah, I mean, I never would have, you know, highlighted that in, in a discussion or a book or anything like that until I met Jack Cornfield, who asked me, you know, how I had learned about mindfulness years ago when I didn't know anything about meditating or anything. And I said, I don't know anything about mindfulness. He goes, oh, no, 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 you do. I can tell you do. And for some reason, even though it had been like 30 years earlier, I said to him, well, I don't know why I'm going to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you about this horse accident I had when I was 20. And you know, the quick summary of it is I was working for the World Health Organization in Mexico. I was going to study uh, Cunanderas uh, up in Huautla, which is where the queen of the mushrooms was. And I was riding a horse with some colleagues up there. And at a full gallop, the saddle on the horse got loose. So it turned to the horse's belly. My feet stayed in the stirrups. And, you know, I destroyed my face and more than just all the bone fractures and everything. Um, I um, lost my identity. And for about 24 hours, I had like no, no idea who I was and no words. And yet I was very happy, even though I had all these broken bones. Um, and when the identity came back after about 24 hours, it had a different quality to it, almost like, a, like either a lightness 
of it or maybe even like a joke like people would say hey danny hey dan you know i was in in between going from danny to dan when i was 20 you know or and, and i would just like hear it and go well i i know what it's like to live without that and so if you knock my head around and i lose that how serious can that really be if it can be knocked out of you so it sort of shifted uh, I, you might call it from a philosophical point of view, my existential way of living. And I always attributed it to some kind of like near death accident that you just feel so grateful to be alive and not have a broken neck and all that stuff. So I just thought, okay, well, I got away, you know, luckily this time. Um, and it wasn't, and I forgot about it. And it wasn't until Jack, you know, asked me that I even thought it had any relevance to anything really, particularly. But um, I learned later when, Later that same day when Jack asked me, he called me up and he said, don't you realize what you said to me? I said, what did I say to you? He goes, you told me, you know, that you got by accident what people take decades to get from meditating. And I literally said to him, I said, why do people want to break their teeth and their nose? And, you know, <laughs> why would they want to hurt themselves meditating? What are you talking about? And he starts laughing his head off. He goes, you have no idea what I'm saying, do you? I said, worse than no idea. What you're saying makes no sense. He goes, lose your identity. And I said, why would someone want to do that? And then we started this long conversation about that. And I said, oh, I see. You know, and then it, anyway, that was like 20 years ago. So, well, just a, a, as a side note, literally right before we talked, I was talking to Jack Cornfield. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, we can talk about that, but that that's where, you know, I felt writing this book on self that uh, to invite the reader in to the, the lifelong journey of what you consider as self in your life, I should start with this very personal thing, even though I don't didn't before that usually talk about it too much. Sometimes when Jack and I teach together, it'll come up and it's kind of a it's kind of a, a, a both a fun and funny and also strange just neurological thing and of course you have your background in, in neurosurgery you know so I would say to you you know what's your thought about a horse accident what it would do to the brain in your head because that's what was being knocked you know my arms were being dragged my head was going bum 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 on the rocks it was a miracle that I didn't break my neck and I just you know had all this thing but what would be banging around Jim in your just to draw on your neuroscience self uh that you think would lead to a 24-hour loss of words and loss of identity. Because I kept on saying, well, who am I? Who am I? And they kept on telling me, and I kept on repeating, well, you know, a few minutes later, they would tell me, you know, who am I? Who am you know, what's your, yeah. what's your thought about that? Yeah, no, I, I think you'd have to separate it from your frontal lobes in some way. And, you know, a concussion uh, can do that. And, uh, you know, fortunately, concussions are... Uh, at least initially, uh, the first couple of times uh, have no sequelae, except perhaps this uh, period of amnesia. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I would have to assume that you traumatized uh, at least temporarily uh, these parts of your brain, primarily associated with identity and who you are and the integration of that. But it's an interesting thing because <clears throat> I think... Uh, and this may head off into another topic, but in terms of issues related to attachment or the baggage each of us carries, so many people want to 
deal with that baggage. And, you know, how do you deal with the baggage? Well, first of all, you have to be aware of the baggage. Then you have to find techniques that can help you integrate that baggage into an acceptance, which then allows you to move forward. Now, some people may choose to use psychedelics in some ways to, if you will, they may say dissolution of the ego. Uh, but uh, I think that is the big challenge is how do you have this metacognition understand the drivers of your behavior because so many people in the world go around and they have these habitual behaviors which are part of patterns they've developed to survive uh, as children and how do you deal with those and understand their root cause or how they affect let's say every relationship you have every interaction you have yet it's not at a conscious level for many people absolutely i think that's really a great question um you're catching me at a moment when I'm on the last two weeks of my next book, which I've been working on for five years with four colleagues, one who passed away in the middle of this project, which has actually been going on for 20 years. Wow. So, so this is an exciting moment. I mean, he was, you know, he was at the end of his life. We all come to the end of life. So it was um, David Daniels was his name. And so with Denise Daniels, his daughter, and Laura Baker, a professor at SC, and Jack Killen, who used to be at the National Institute of Health, We've been working on this project to address your question, Jim. So in a nutshell, what I would say to you is that we have attachment on the one hand that, um, you know, you have these adaptive strategies to deal with the fundamental three needs to be safe, to be seen, to be soothed. And if you get those on a reliable basis and when you don't get those safe, seen and soothed, you then have non-secure or insecure attachment. If you don't have them, if you do get them, you get secure attachment. <clears throat> so those are like the four S's. So when you look at that, then you say, well, how does temperament fit into that? So temperament is kind of the inborn ways. Some of them may be genetic. Some of them may be formed in utero. Some of them may be shaped very early on, but it's basically not what you learned, but kind of this innate way that the nervous system has a propensity. And so what we did was we, we examined 50,000 narratives that we have from David Daniels in a system called the Enneagram. We then uh, looked at how attachment patterns might be related to these nine different patterns that are described in that system. And in our view, anyway, attachment does not determine those personality patterns, but it determines the rigidity of them or the, the lack of flexibility of them is another way to say it. So to put it very simply, our model suggests that in temperament terms, you draw on the subcortical circuits that are a drive for agency, for kind of empowered uh, embodiment, you know, where I, I get my basic needs met. That's one subcortical circuit that a guy named Yak Pengsep beautifully described. And then Yak also described um, a bonding network where you really need relational connections to feel whole. Um, and a third system, which is very distinct in the subcortical areas, is a certainty network where you feel if you can predict, you can protect. You know, you can get safety with prediction. So ABC is, you know, how I thought it was useful to remember that agency, bonding, and certainty. And then some people in various ways have a focus of their energy that's either inward or outward or kind of a dyadic, both inward and outward. And I was having a birthday lunch with a colleague bemoaning how I'm trying to finish this book. And the one aspect of the book we don't have any science for is this 
tendency of attention, which I named if it's a tendency of attention as a tendency. And she's looking at me um, at this birthday lunch and she goes, Dan, I showed that like a couple of years ago in the brain. She's a neuroscientist. This is Mary Helen M. Ardino Yang. Oh, sure. I, said, I know. She, she worked with us actually at Stanford. Oh, she's magnificent. So yeah, Mary Helen goes, yeah, I actually proved that what you guys are hypothesizing exists in the brain. I said, oh, I didn't know your study. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know your study. Send it to me. So she sends me, and sure enough, there it is, that there's this inward focus different from introversion, outward focus, and then this kind of tension, like a flip-flop, flip-flop, flip-flop between the two. It's exactly what we've written about. So I called my colleagues, and I said, Mary Helen actually found in the brain, so now we're set. We got everything with the ox work, the Mary Helen's work. So anyway, if you take those three attendancies, inward, outward, or dyadic, both inward and outward, and match them onto the agency bonding certainty proclivities, people tend to have one, one of those combinations dominant in their life, a kind of baseline or primary one. So if you've had non-secure attachment, Jim, you, and if I've had non-secure attachment as Dan, depending on our temperament, our temperament does not in any way determine our attachment. That's been shown in, by Brian Vaughn and others. But what we think happens is if you have non-secure attachment, your non-secure attachment, even if it's ambivalent and mine is also ambivalent, may manifest in very different ways because our temperament is different. So I'm super excited about this book. It's taken forever to, <laughs> to get it all together with all these different you know, co-writers, but basically I'm the now the only voice in it, now finishing it. Um, and so I'm super excited to talk about it with you because it's literally incredibly useful to say, okay, well, you may have had ambivalent attachment, you know, where your parents were uncertain, or you may have had disorganized attachment where they were terrifying, or you may have had, you know, kind of cold, distant parenting, and that's a different kind of disconnection. Um, and then we can trace that alongside your what we call PDP, your pattern of developmental pathway based on this agency bonding or certainty vector and how it combines with your tendency in ways that are super useful. So I just was teaching in Sweden and some some group of uh, climate um, or um, an or climate organization no. staff were there and they said, well, how do we deal with burnout? I said, well, give, let me give you nine different ways depending on the meaning of life for you and what your attachment was, that your work in climate change may be leading to burnout. Because you can't just say burnout generally. We can do very specific work for you, whether you're agency inward, agency outward, agency dyadic, et cetera. And they were like blown away because each of them, there was a whole big group there. They could see, yeah, they each had different ways where the climate challenge was leading to a fragility in very different ways in each of them. Well, let me ask a question first. What's the name of the new book so people can get prepared for it? Yeah, so I haven't turned it in yet, but <laughs> the, the tentative title is pretty simple. Well, I don't know if it's simple, but it's Personality and Wholeness in Psychotherapy. So it's it's a professional book to guide. You're not going to believe this, Jim, but in the field of psychotherapy, broadly speaking, no one people teach about personality disorders, but not about personality. Interesting. It is, it's amazing. So... This will be basically a clinician's guide to say, here's the model. We can test it with the researchers, but here's the model. I've been using it for 15 years. David used to use it before he passed. And, um, you know, here's the model. See if it works for you. And if it doesn't, throw it away. But if it does, it's really cool. Wow, fascinating. Well, let me ask you another question because you mentioned Enneagrams. Uh, 
<clears throat> at least my understanding, and people have done these for me, and uh, I think they're interesting, but what is the science behind it? Because some people say, well, it can give you some insights, but there's no hardcore science. But am I wrong? Yeah, no, I think I think it's a fair way to start. And um, for me, when I first heard about this system called the Enneagram, I had exactly- uh, I'm glad you pronounced it this, <laughs> yeah. the, so Ennea, the correct way. <laughs> yeah, Ennea means nine, and yeah. Gram just means a figure. Right, so it's right. a nine-pointed figure. And when I first heard about it a long time ago, I was going like, oh, what's the science behind this? I went to the meeting. I wasn't so impressed. Um, so I said, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. But then David Daniels, who was a leading teacher in the field, called me up with his daughter and said, hey, you know, we've read your book, The Developing Minds. This is a long, this is 20 years ago almost now. And they said, we think you left out temperament. I go, well, yeah, I was kind of focusing mostly on attachment because my field showed temperament doesn't predict attachment. And I already had this book that was too long. So I didn't, you're right. I didn't do that. Well, they say, you want to learn about it? I said, well, sure. But they told me what the deal was an Enneagram workshop with leading figures on the planet, you know, all of them coming. I said, but I'm going to go as a scientist. You know, they said, okay, fine. So I show up there and, you know, they said, okay, what type are you? And I go, what do you mean? What type am I? What a ridiculous question is that? They go, well, there are nine types. I go, well, I don't really believe in types. They go, okay, well, let, let, let us ask you some questions. So they gave me this quick question. They go, okay, we think you're like us. You're this particular type. So then I go in the big group of the 50 people and I get up on a panel and I'm telling you, Jim, they talked as if they were me. They were wow. different shapes and sizes from all over the planet, literally different backgrounds, so, you know, cultural backgrounds, national backgrounds, ages. But when they spoke, I said, I could have said exactly those words. And then when I got down off the panel and saw the other eight panels, you know, as a scientist, it was like going, whoa, there is something really interesting here. The Enneagram, you know, some people say has hundreds and hundreds of years of history. You know, Gurdjieff talked about it in the last century. Then in the 19th, early 70s, uh, a psychiatrist named Claudio Naranjo went from Berkeley down to Chile and he worked with Oscar Ochauzo. Um, So Claudio Naranjo and Ochauzo formulated what we think of as the modern view of the Enneagram, but people say it has ancient roots, and there's a whole history there. But it was always a psycho-spiritual system of development. Um, and Claudio, you know, I had a chance to have lunch with him, actually, at one of those meetings. And Claudio Naranjo was trained in Western psychiatry and Western developmental thinking, so, you know, what Claudio said to me was, you know, I think this is just something about temperament. I don't know. So he's recently passed, but, you know, the Enneagram itself was not taught as like an extension of scientific understanding of temperament at all. The original teachings had zero to do with the brain. And what it was, was a very useful, or what it is, is a very useful system that when people discover their type, uh, you know, they go, whoa, this explains my whole life. So just forgetting the science for a moment, just in terms of usefulness, people just find it useful, you know? And even in the book, The Myth of Personality, which, which rips apart the Myers-Briggs and all these other personality systems, they didn't touch the Enneagram. So even though the Enneagram isn't derived from science, we as five scientists, David Daniels, Denise Daniels, Laura Baker, Jack Killen, myself, we're all trained as scientists. 
we think that there is a scientifically plausible mechanism that is not in the Enneagram community yet. They don't talk about that. So this PDP, this Patterns of Developmental Pathways, is basically offering a scientific view based on empirical science about development, attachment, the brain, all that kind of stuff, um, about the Enneagram. So we have these 50,000 Enneagram narratives that David collected, and they were saying, why are people clearly divided into these nine groupings? So the first thing we do is we say we don't believe in types. We believe in patterns. Now, what's the difference? A type kind of rigidifies you in something with very tight boundaries. A pattern is more like a verb rather than a noun. It has a quality of enduring characteristics, but that are more along a spectrum of values. Um, and, and in the research, it'll be easier to study it that way too, if we can come up with a reliable instrument. Right now, it's just a description, so we don't have an instrument. But what you can do then, by looking at agency, bonding, and certainty, the attendancy of inward, outward, and, and dyadic of both, what you can do then is basically, and I've done this in lots of workshops, I don't tell anyone about the Enneagram. I said, let's dive into the brain. I'm going to give you the model. Now you start interviewing each other and you get a 90% hit rate, Jim, where people will find one PDP. So it's not just like, oh, these are Enneagram aficionados and they want to shove themselves in a category. These are people who didn't even know they're going to talk about this. And then I do it with them and they figure out how to do the interview with each other. It's that logical. Wow. So it's cool. It's really fun. And you know, what's really nice about it, as I mentioned with the climate change folks, is while it's it's inspired by the narratives of the Enneagram world, so the Enneagram community that we presented to are super excited about it, it kind of stands on its own also. We use that as our original data, but you can do the whole PDP model without having to refer to the Enneagram um, history. I mean, because the brain is the brain, right? I mean, whatever people have been saying for hundreds of years... We've been human beings with brains who've been trying to make sense of ourselves. And, and not very well, apparently. And not very well, as you can tell <laughs> from the world these days. Yeah, absolutely. Sadly, sadly, sadly. Uh, well, that's fascinating. You know, it's it's fun, so funny you brought that up, though, because I'd had this done and I couldn't remember, you know, what type I was or whatever. So I did one online and I, I just was actually pulling it up looking at <laughs> Did you find, did you know, now see, here's the thing about the, the inter-test reliability is very low, you know, with the Enneagram ones that exist. So what that means is you could do one test and be a number two, you could do another one and you're a number nine, and do another one and you're a number three. They're done by numbers. Right. Um, and so that's why we have not put out any kind of particularity of things. We said, learn the system deeply and then just go with it. Don't Don't confine yourselves to extremely specific questions at this point. Yeah, my, my, mine is your primary type is eight. That's what it says. Motivated by a desire to be independent and take charge of themselves and others and assertive personality and passion about life where they approach with vigor and confidence. Eights know how to look after themselves. They pursue their own destiny. I don't know. Let's... How does that feel to you, Jim? It's probably correct. <laughs> <laughs> so let me give you the translation. Um, you know, and I, I have a, a, a patient who wrote a book about her therapy with me, and I have her permission to talk about her because she wrote a whole book about me and <laughs> named me in the book. Um, anyway, but she also, you know, she said to me, 
you know, I wonder if I'm just a narcissist because I'm so, you know, bullheaded. I give everyone my opinion. And, and I said, you know, I've been sitting with you for many weeks now. I don't think you're a narcissist. I think you're, you know, I think you're an agency outward uh, PDP. She goes, well, what are you talking about? I said, well, the, the existing system is the Enneagram, but our translation of this, and I'll ask you, Jim, about this, is that, and I went through it with her, you know, is your big issue about, like, do you need certainty in life? Do you need bonding in life? Or is the, is the major one, do you need to have this kind of embodied energy for empowerment of agency? And what would you say if I asked you that broad question? Which of those do you resonate with? Needing certainty, needing bonding, or needing kind of agency? I think agency and, and trying to understand uh, the world and in the sense, um, not necessarily coming to conclusions, but to be open uh, to different things, but also having an opinion uh, you know, based on my own experience and feeling that opinion is valid. Uh, and I think, you know, it's funny now that we're getting into Jim Doty here, I'm not sure I like this, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but I had a therapist. We were, t uh, I, I shockingly have been in therapy. I went through five years of, of, uh, Freudian analysis, four years of Jungian analysis and multiple years of, uh, other types of analysis. What I tell people is I gained great self-awareness and and from that, I actively chose not to change. So, <laughs> well, so so right, exactly. But, but but what I was saying is that, so the therapist I was talking to, he said, "Well, Jim, you do have these narcissistic tendencies, but the thing that always saves you is <clears throat> your open heart, right?" Yeah. So it's an interesting. Uh, well, Jim, it's going to be so interesting for you to read this book because. We talk about the deep, deep, heartfelt caring of those in the agency outward group, even though when I was able to interview a bunch of agency outward folks who are really on the path of self-discovery, this is what they said. I said, what's it like to be in your grouping, agency outward? And they said, listen, um, we have two big challenges. And so, Jim, just see if they, you resonate with these. This is what they said. So it may not be true for you. But they said... One is, you know, we really have a hard time with vulnerability. You know, to be dependent on other people doesn't feel so comfortable. And so it gets us kind of agitated. And, and the other thing is that we really don't like the feeling of um, needing to go inward and do a lot of reflection on ourselves. And we're not that great at empathy, even though we care a lot. Um, and it was fascinating because with the outward tendency, that really fits, that a lot of your energy is, and even the way you said it earlier was, I want to see what's going on in the world and then have my opinion about it. Like that would be like the classic agency outward statement, you know? And when I go into a room, I want people to know what my view is, you know? And um, so it, it, with you and what I did with this, this patient who wrote the book about this work was here, here's the model in a nutshell. And, and this part, is a big hypothesis. So you can have the whole model without what I'm about to say, but let's see how this feels for you. You know, when you're in the womb, you have an experience of just being. You don't have to eat. You don't have to breathe. You don't have to make sure someone's taking care of you, protecting you, nothing. You're just simply being. So let's just call that 
the original wholeness, this feeling I'm just at ease, right? Once you come out of the womb, however you get out, out here in the world, you have to work for a living. It's literally a do or die situation. If you don't breathe, you die. You don't eat, you die. If you don't have someone protecting you, you die. It's serious business, and it is a work-for-your-life business. So what we think that that shift does is it creates a brain mechanism where in something called implicit memory, you've encoded, as we know from research, you've encoded the experiences in the womb. So let's just say you have an implicit memory of familiarity with wholeness. But now you, you're not whole. So the drive to get back to wholeness will be an activation of one of these three vectors or these subcortical networks, agency for empowered embodiment, bonding for relational connection, or certainty for prediction and safety. Now, maybe you can have all three, but it looks like the way the brain seems to work is one of those may be a little more sensitive than another. So as you're out in the world, no matter how great your parents are, of course, if you have non-secure attachment, this is going to be more intensely dug in. But this feeling of a, a, a being away from wholeness and trying to get back to something you know exists can take its form if your agency outward, like for you, it's going to take its form. And, you know, I've got to really be, con, you know, communicating what is really my opinion. What's my view? I've got to let people know this is my view because the agency one is about this empowered embodiment, you know, my basic needs being met. For me, I'm not in that grouping. For me, my grouping is in the certainty area. You know, so when I walk into a party, this is the classic way you would describe in the Enneagram term. I think it's a great way of doing it. If you're 20, before you've ever had any therapy, you're going to a party, you don't know anyone. Like, let's say, Jim, what would you do at that party when you I first walked in? I, probably I would introduce myself. Okay. Exactly. You want to have your, you're there. I'm an agency outward one. I'm going to introduce myself to everyone else. Absolutely. I would not do that. What I would do is I'd enter the room. I'd look for the fire exits. I'd look for anyone who could hurt me. I'd look for literally, I'm not kidding. I'd look at how to escape a danger. And I'd absolutely have what's called worst case scenario thinking that my certainty vector, and I'm a dyadic one, I'd be aware of my fear of danger I'd be outwardly looking for what could actually be the cause of danger. And I'm like a walking preparation machine. I wouldn't care if I introduced myself. It would, I don't, doesn't matter to me. I just want to know how do I get out of there if I need to, right? And so like when I do wow. this with my wife, when I tell her, we're doing this, we're going on this trip, this, she goes, why do you do that? And then when we found out this system, especially when you do the PDP part, it makes so much sense. You know, now you can combine it with my attachment history, which was not secure. So the, the groove got dug more deeply. So the, the work I had to do on myself was to lighten up that groove and access more of the other vectors like agency. So now I could introduce myself. Bonding. I could develop my relational connections, not just be consumed with fear about what's going to hurt me. You know. Anyway, so this system is so cool because it gives you these vectors and these tendencies that you can work with and make more flexible. But it's all with a drive to get whole. And I don't know I don't know how that part of the story feels to you because I was on a river rafting trip in, in uh, Colorado and everyone said, what are you up to? These were all tech people from, you know, Silicon Valley. And, you know, I was, I said, well, I'm a psychiatrist. And they go, what are you doing? I said, I write books. So what do you write books? I'm writing books on this system of PDP. And they go, oh my God. So everyone would hop on my raft 
to try to have an analysis of their particular grouping. And for the tech people, not their spouses, they said, Dan, you should drop the thing about wholeness in the womb. That's like woo-woo. And the spouses would all say, that's like the best part of the whole system. So I want to check it out with you since you're up in Silicon Valley. I'll see what well, you think. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because, uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of neurodiverse people here, right? Yeah. And they have a, a different way of how they see themselves uh, uh, oftentimes. So I, I certainly can understand that. Interestingly, getting back to my own self-absorption here, it's funny because uh, on the one hand, you know, vulnerability is is something that can be terrifying. But in some ways, I've actually actively forced myself to be vulnerable in the sense to put yourself out there and accept that that's okay. And yeah. I think that's been uh, very powerful. But, uh, you know, the downside of that agency outward type is it can be intimidating for a subset of people, uh, exactly. especially, especially if you're a big guy, you're vocal, hopefully articulate, of course, charismatic, handsome included. And <laughs> but, but you know, and I, I realize that because it's not in any way on a conscious level, but people respond to that when you have this appearance of assurance and confidence that overwhelms people and, and, and people have a hard time with it. You know, Jim, that's so beautiful you say that, you know, we, we would, in our, in our approach, we, we call that a growth edge. We would say, you know, by naming the growth edge, for an agency outward, you know, pattern or pathway, we call it, you know, it gives you the work you need to do. And also it gives you the empathy to understand, wow, e even if I wasn't, you know, a big human being, I have a big personality and I'm, you know, it can be overwhelming people. So you learn to sort of dial it down a little bit, not because you're um, having to intimidate yourself, but just because you really want to give space for other people, you know, and uh, so it's where the system really works. Now, how does the wholeness from the womb and feeling like we are all on this lifelong journey to, to feel whole in life, how does that sit with you? No, I think that's, you know, it's very important. And in, in some ways it relates to compassion because, you know, when you beat yourself up all the time, that creates a blindness to the other oftentimes, right? Because you're so self-focused on your issues and you think, well, I'm the only one who's suffering. And the reality is when you open your eyes, you understand everyone is suffering. And as we were just talking about, people have different ways of seeing the world and reacting to the world. And you have to be sensitive to that and be accepting of that. And I think, you know, that's a lesson that for many people is hard to learn. And, and frankly, I, I mean, I'm still learning a lot, a lot of lessons. But you know, I've been blessed to, uh, you know, connect with people uh, who, you know, if you will, shown me the past. I think I use that term. Actually, in, in, uh, I have a new book coming out. So that's that. Uh, oh, great. Yeah. What's the new book about? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> it's called uh, Mind Magic, the Neuroscience of Manifestation and How It Changes Everything. But, oh, interesting. Well, the narrative here is, I'm sure you've seen the book, The Secret. I saw it years ago, years yeah, ago, yeah. Well, and it's a very self-focused, me, 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 I want, I want. And, you know, obviously the nature of Western capitalist society is it's all about me. And if I have, and they define success as by what you have, and that somehow equates with happiness. And this is really all about... Um, 
understanding the difference be between what you think you want and what you actually need. And this is also separates you from this narrative of I want to how can I be of service? And I think when you look outwardly at what I can do to be of service, that actually empowers your manifestation where you get all the other stuff that you think you may want. And so it, in some ways, it um, changes the narrative completely. It's, it's the antithesis of the secret. But the other side, it also talks about the nature of self-agency and how people look outward wanting some magic or to rely on something either to make them whole when, in fact, of course, you know that you're the only one who can give your, yourself that. So I found for myself, from my own uh, uh, issues, that you know I was out there trying to be X, Y, or Z and then hoping that people would go, oh, well, Jim's a great guy. Look at what he's done. But of course, it doesn't work that way. You have to be comfortable with yourself. And uh, so uh, uh, that's pretty much what it's about. And then I go into the nature of cognitive brain networks, the attention network, the salience network, these uh, executive control network, the default mode network, and talk about how they interact and how it can actually embed your intention in a more effective way because, you know, all of us are trying to manifest intentions. It's can you actively embed them so that they have the greatest chance of, of manifesting. So that's sort yeah. of what it's about. Well, that's beautiful. So for you, the word manifesting... Um, does that resonate with the notion that intention sets a directionality that facilitates what you could call emergence or synergy, where you're no longer controlling things, but you're letting things arise with a certain directionality to them? That, that, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, and the, the thing I'm always nervous about a little bit about the secret story um, which sounds like it's not what you're talking about, is I've heard uh, some interpretations of that saying that, well, like if you get a disease, then it's your fault because if you were really living right, you'd be able to get a million dollar check in your mailbox, you know, um, and I go, excuse me? So if you get a disease, it's your fault. And if you didn't get the million dollar check, it's your fault. They go, that's right. Because if you really know the manifestation of the secret, then you just manifest by imagining that million-dollar check, and obviously you create a disease. So I'm always nervous about that. So I'm really glad to hear you're you're not going that route. No, no, uh, no. Yeah. And in fact, it's a much more thoughtful, gentle, and and you know, it's always interesting how there's a subset of people who, as an example, it's like the person who quit smoking or lost weight. Now they're on this, you know, reform thing that talks about how great they are. They were able to do it. Therefore, everyone else should be able to do it. Right? Yeah. And of course, well, it's interesting. You know, let me let me share something with you, Jim, and see if how this fits with your new book uh, on manifestation. Um, you know, it, it, just to give you a very very short summary of stuff. You know, I, I years ago I was working to try to uh, figure out in the decade of the brain when it began what what the connection mind and brain was, and in the course of doing that was the birth of this field called interpersonal neurobiology that I work in, and in the course of doing that, what came up was that integration was the basis of health, which is things being differentiated and linked. And in the course of that, you know, I took that idea to therapy because I'm a therapist. And I said, what if you integrated consciousness because it looked like consciousness was needed for change. So then uh, I took people around this table where you differentiated the knowing of consciousness in the hub of this glass center of the table 
from the outer part of the table, which was like a wheel, like a rim of a wheel. Anyway, so I ended up doing it with lots of patients, teaching it to other therapists who did it with their patients. Then I started doing workshops. And before COVID-19 hit, I did it, my assistant counted it up, with 50,000 people in person, this wow. wheel of awareness practice. And, you know, because I'm a scientist, I would record what they said they experienced. And, you know, I've written a couple of books, Mind and Aware and Becoming Aware and this book, Interconnected. So you can read about that. But here I just want to share with you and see how it fits with your book. You know, one scientific view of what the hub is, um, basically, uh, if you, and this is now taking 100 pages of a book where I carefully articulate this, and I'm going to say it like in three sentences, so excuse me if it feels too obtuse. But one way of understanding it is if you say the mind is an emergent property of energy flow, not just limited to the skull, but throughout the whole body and not just in the body, but relational. So that's number one. If you talk to brain scientists, they don't have anything that really corresponds to people saying the hub of that wheel when they bend the spoke around, and this happens over and over and over and over again, is empty but full. It's love, it's connection, it's joy, it's peace, it's home, it's feeling whole, it's, you know, this timelessness. So I went to all the neuroscientists you and I know as colleagues. I said, you know, how do you explain this? They go, we can't. So then I happened to be, you know, with Arthur Zions, the head of mind sure. and life at the time, you know, in Italy, 150 physicists with Arthur, who was a sure. quantum yes. physicist, and right. me. And I said to these physicists, you know, because I had a week we were together, I said, what is energy? And they said, oh, Dan, that's pretty straightforward. I go, what? Energy is the movement for possibility to actuality. So I go, what? They go, energy is the movement for possibility to actuality. So I mapped it out for them, showed them this graph. They go, I go, is this what you mean? They go, well, that's what we mean, but we don't have a graph. Uh, I said, but does this fit with what your quantum physics studies show? They go, absolutely. So then I mapped the graph onto the wheel of awareness practice, showed it to the physicist, and Arthur went nuts. He said, that's it. That you know, that's, that's exactly it. So... Anyway, so here's the proposal, and this has to do with manifestation, that the movement for possibility to actuality can be graphed out as this movement from what physicists calls, or Arthur likes to call, the sea of potential, which is the quantum vacuum. It's kind of the generator of diversity. It's where all, as Arthur calls it, the formless source of all form. It's where all possibilities are sitting before they manifest into various probabilities and then actualities. And you'll see this in the 100-page discussion of it in Aware, the book Aware. But then what you can show from the Wheel of Awareness is that the reason people say empty but full, this is the hypothesis, is that the knowing of awareness, that hub of the wheel in the metaphor or practice, is when the energy position is in that sea of potential. And that's why they're saying it's timeless because there's no time variable in the quantum realm. There's one in the Newtonian macrostate realm. It's empty but full. People say that because it's empty of form but full of possibility. That's why they're saying the phrase. And amazingly, it is, and this is the part that absolutely blew my mind, love. And maybe that's our linguistic term for linkage because all the linkages are there. But everyone says love, 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 joy, love, peace, wholeness. So when I hear you write a book about manifestation, what I'm wondering about how this fits with you is if people access this hub of the wheel in the practice, but if people are accessing, we call it the plane of possibility in the diagram, 
if people learn to live by accessing that plane, like I do the wheel every morning, your life is manifesting integration, this healthy way of being, because that plane of possibility is the portal through which integration naturally arises. So all these plateaus, which are your ego and your ways you've adapted and all that stuff, that personality stuff we talked about, you actually go beneath those and allow integration to naturally manifest. No, I, I, you know, it's funny you say that. I think that's exactly right. And uh, I don't know if you've done psychedelics. I was hoping we could get into that discussion. but We you can. Know. We can get into it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I don't have uh, much experience in that uh, area, but I can well, talk about uh, it. I won't even go through all the details, but I ended up trying this thing, the TOAD, right? The uh, 5-MEO DMT, the short-acting. Uh, yes. Yeah. But, but the reason I was bringing that up is because, you know, it's like you're shot into... Uh, out to the universe on a slingshot. Uh, but I have to say the feeling of that was a complete connection with everything. And this is, I think, at sort of at the, uh, uh, the peak of this practice is being able to see yourself as the other and understanding that the connection is love. And I, I have to say during that experience, I was weeping tears of joy being connected to everything. Exactly. And, and the beauty of that. So it was, uh, but yes, at, at the end of the day, I mean, the point of, of the manifestation is this understanding that what will make your life is being of service to others, and that will give you meaning and purpose, and that integrates yeah. you uh, into everything and makes you, frankly, uh, I, I believe, a whole human being. Exactly. Well, there's the word whole, and I'll just say, when researchers have when I've done informally, done the wheel of awareness, well, formally done the wheel, but when they do an informal mystical experiences scale, when people get in the hub, they get the same score as if they were on psilocybin. And, you know, what's interesting about it is some of the psychedelic researchers have privately been calling me because the wheel offers this mechanism that fits with the descriptions of being on various psychedelics. It meets with Robin Carhart Harris's paper on the entropic brain and in fact, Amishi Ja, who we both know, oh, yeah, of course. You know, she heard me do the plane of possibility thing, do the wheel of awareness. She said, I'm going to find that in the brain. And she did. Based on the diagram, she was able to locate the, the basically the neurosignature for pure awareness in this massively uncommitted state. This, If you look at the probability curve, you can see where she learned to try to predict that. So what's really cool about that then is that you know, these the, the medical research on psychedelic use, when every paper I've read on that, because people ask me to comment on that, like you're asking me, every paper I've read on that fits with the model of this diagram that what psychedelics do, this is my hypothesis, is they shift the way the brain is functioning. So instead of being all these top-down, learned, committed survival adaptations, you get to pure awareness, which is energy flow. It's timeless. It's, you know, if you look at the physics view, and I presented this to physicists, so it's been vetted by, you know, card-carrying quantum physicists, including Arthur Zions. You know, when you're in this state, I think you're in the quantum realm where everything is connected. There are only verbs. There's no variable of time called the directionality of change or the arrow of time. Whereas in the Newtonian realm, these large objects called a body or an apple falling from a tree, you know, you experience time and separation in physical space. 
But as we know, the Nobel Prize was given in 2022, showing the people who showed it, you know, that this thing called non-locality exists. We don't know if that's part of the mind, but it's certainly part of the universe. And what's fascinating about that is then it's just like, Jim, you and I could go for a walk on a trail and we're taking a nice hike that the properties of walking on the trail. And we said, hey, let's go for a swim in this lake. So we jump in the lake and the properties of being in the water are just different from walking on the land. We get up, we dry off, we continue our walk. We don't freak out because we say, oh my God, there's a water property and a land property. But there's a quantum realm property that the wheel of awareness helps you access. I think psychedelics help you access it too. Only then it just kind of goes away. And if you don't integrate that in your life, it's like, okay, that was an interesting trip. But when you do the wheel, you learn how to access that hub like that at any given time. And so you learn to manifest integration by just having the practice that you do every day. No, I, I think that's uh, that's a great insight. And I, I think that's reality because you do have to do it every day and you have to, I, I don't know if the word's recentering, but, uh, uh, it, and it's easy to get distracted by so many other things going on. But if you do that practice, you know, it's like Thich Nhat Hanh. It's like walking meditation. You have to integrate it all every day into what you do and how you live. And then, of course, it becomes easier and easier to do that. Well, exactly. And this is, you know, I, I love the courage people are having to try psychedelic research and all that. I really do. And the wheel of awareness seems to be able to get you there on a daily basis where instead of people that I've spoken with say, oh, I wish I could start doing this every day or microdosing and all that stuff. And I said, well, why don't you do a practice where if your brain was able to achieve it on a substance like toad or psilocybin or, you know, ketamine or, I mean, we can go through the whole list. You know, if your brain can do that, and maybe this is where my horse accident comes in, you know, if your brain can do it on a substance, you can do it Absolutely. with the focus of your mind. And people go, what do you mean? I go, well, read Interconnected. And you'll get, and even when I was doing the audiobook of Interconnected, Jim, the, um, the audio engineer starts like going to this alternate space and he wasn't doing his engineering. So I said, okay, time, time, time. So I went back into the booth. I said, what's going on? He goes, I'm listening to you read this book, but he goes, is this a book or is this like some meditative journey you're taking me on? I said, well, it's a book that is a meditative journey. Uh, so I'm really glad you're having the experience, but listen, I need an audio engineer. So let me explain to you what's about to happen so you can just stay present for the dials, you know? Um, and that's what people have said by reading the book. So what's fun about it is, you know, we don't have to separate spirituality from psychological growth. You know, these are areas that should never have been separated. And when you think, even just from a physics point of view, when you learn to live accessing the quantum realm, which is here for us, only we don't realize we can jump in that lake and enjoy swimming. We're just busy, stuck on the land. Then during your day, you can go to the timeless place of open awareness that is full of love. It's, if you just think of the acronym COAL, it's connection, open awareness, O and love. That's really what I think manifestation allows you to tap into. And, you know, collectively, I try to remember this with the word MUI, you have a body that's a me, and you also have a relational field that's a we, but you don't lose the me in becoming the we. You got to somehow integrate them, differentiate and link them. And that's where we is just a way where you bring this all together. 
No, I think uh, 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 that's absolutely correct. And I think while I think psychedelics are interesting, I found for myself I can get anywhere I need to be simply by a meditative practice. And, yeah. uh, uh, and I think that's what also is out there for people when they understand the power they have within themselves. They just don't appreciate it. Um, well, on that note, I really appreciate you spending the time. Actually, it was quite educational and uh, very enjoyable. And I got uh, a bit of uh, psychoanalysis for free there, which we've <laughs> shared with everyone. <laughs> I hope you're okay with that, Jim. This was really fun for me, too. No, no. Listen, <laughs> I, I actually loved it, and I, I'm appreciative. And uh, it's always such a, a joy to see you, spend time with you, and uh, hang out. So I'm, I'm looking for the next opportunity we have to do that. Oh, let's do that. Well, there, there are many, many coming up, so uh, I hope we'll see each other in person. Yes, and I, I, I want to get a copy of your book So uh, when, uh, when it comes out or before or whatever. Well, Interconnected is out, and then, yeah, the, the, I'll get you the a copy of the Personality yes. and Wholeness and Psychotherapy. I'm turning it in two weeks, so uh, hopefully it'll just pass through the editor, copy editor, uh, painlessly, and uh, we'll get it out in the world. Well, thank you again so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thanks, Jim. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. <laughs>